Hi, my name is Etta, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. And I was drafted. <laughs> You'll notice on there it says Margaret Margaret MC from Cheyenne. Well, this, this isn't her. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I've been, uh, you know, I see a lot of these speakers come up, and they've got their notes and everything. And if I do that, I really screw up. I screw up anyway, so I don't have to have any notes to do it. <laughs> But I want to, uh, I think we all know here that uh, alcoholism is a disease of denial. And I denied it for years and years and years. In fact, I grew up, you know, Oki likes this word dysfunctional, but I'm going to throw him another one. I grew up in a functional family, <laughs> you know, and there was no drinking. We didn't have any liquor. I didn't know anyone that drank. I didn't have any relatives that drank or anything. I, lear I learned, uh, oh, years later that my grandfather used to have a glass of wine every afternoon. But that's about the, uh, whether he was an alcoholic, I don't know. But, you know, there just was, I, I had never heard that word and I had never seen anyone drunk. The first person I saw drunk was my husband. Now, I know that I'm not supposed to tell his story. But he's going to pop up here every now and then because without him, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> so anyway, I started, uh, we used to go to dance. I love to dance, and we used to go to dances. And uh, if he hadn't have been a good dancer, I'd have probably never married him. But he was a good dancer, and we I started going with him when I was 16. And uh, he was 25, so if you figure that up real fast, it's nine. he's nine years older than I am. And my folks thought that was all right. They never did think anything uh, about the age difference. The only thing they had seen him, he'd come over to our house. He was a happy drunk. You know, he'd get real happy, and he was easy to manipulate when he was drunk. And... Uh, <laughs> So they, they would, my dad saw this, and he, when they figured that I was serious, they didn't want me to marry him. And I thought, well, that's okay, because as soon as we get married, I'll straighten him out, you know. He won't drink anymore, and uh, in fact, it didn't bother me at all, because, like I say, he was a happy drunk, and he just didn't, he didn't drink. The only time I remember seeing him drunk was one time he took me on a picnic. He worked for the Texas Company. And they had a picnic up on top of the mountain. And uh, he dropped me as soon as he got there because I didn't drink. And he was so busy playing waiter to all these good-looking girls. He was, every time I'd see him, he'd have some beer in his hand, taking him over to some girls and everything, you know. Well, he got pretty loaded, and I got pretty mad. And I asked somebody to take me home. So I, I, I just left him up there, and I come on home. And I can't remember how that ended, whether we went to the dance together. He probably wasn't in any shape, too, so we probably didn't go to the dance. But we used to fight an awful lot when there wasn't a time, a day went by that we didn't have a, an argument or something. I guess I was even trying to control him then, you know. I don't know. But we got married when I was 18, and uh, we moved to Cody. And we lived on a ranch up there. And uh, we were the only ones for... Miles around. It was during the winter. So you see, we really had a lot of togetherness. And it was a real happy time. 
I, I really, I look back on that. And I really, that was one of the happiest times of our marriage. He's never been really a, a conversationalist. <laughs> so I usually am the one that do most of the talking. And I, I learned early on that I had to ask questions to get anything out of him. And he gets really ticked off when I ask too many questions. So I have to be careful about that, too. But anyway, uh, we lived up there through the winter, and in the spring we came back to Casper. All this time, he never, he, he didn't drink at all. And we came back to Casper, and he went to work for the Texas company, and, and uh, we kind of settled down, newly married couple, you know. And a couple years later, we had a son, and um, there still wasn't any drinking. And this went on for... Oh, about 10 years, 11 years. And uh, then when World War II came along, he got the bride. Well, he was going to go to uh, Panama. He had a friend over there that uh, had a garage, and he was going to go to Panama and uh, work as a parts man over there. Well, I was scared to death to have him go to Panama because there were, you know, it was during the war. It had just started, and there were submarines in the water, and I'd read this in the paper, and I just threw a tizzy. He wasn't going to go to Panama. So he enlisted in the Air Force and went to England. <laughs> and there was nothing I could do about that. <laughs> and he was gone two and a half years. And you know, that's quite a hunk out of a life, uh, you know, to be... I got to be pretty self-sufficient. I knew how to change a tire. I knew how to take care of my car. I knew how to do the repairs in the house and all these things. You, you learn those things when you're alone. And when he come back, I didn't let go of those things. You know, I kept still kept doing them because, well, I don't know if he'd have done them anyway, but, you know, I, I just, I was used to doing them and I just went ahead. But before the war, our recreation and our uh, pastime and all was playing cards with friends on a Friday night or Saturday night and we'd always have coffee and sandwiches you know and we never when anybody come in and we ask them if they wanted a drink they knew it was coffee or tea or lemonade whatever it was but after the war things changed when anybody came to our house and we asked them to have a drink, well, it was liquor. Because I don't know whether he, he, this had laid dormant all this time, but he sure learned how to drink when he was over there in England. And, uh, but he wasn't a bad drunk. He was, he was a happy one. And I didn't think too much of it because when, we, when he got home, why, of course, he wanted to go out and see his friends and everything first first week he was home we went bar hopping all over town we had a lot of fun and all the time I could nurse one drink the whole evening because I couldn't I couldn't drink if I had more than one drink I was under the table and I like to be in control I don't like to anything to happen to me I like to know what's going on <laughs> not that I haven't been over the bridge a couple of times <laughs> but uh, <laughs> But I do, I, I do like to be in control, and I didn't, I didn't like that feeling of, uh, you know, something could happen. And like I said before, he was a real happy drunk, and I could manipulate him. If you know, it was a lot easier when he was drunk because I could get anything I wanted, 
and he'd agree, and he was so agreeable and everything. When he wasn't drinking, he was kind of grouchy. So I really didn't care. And <clears throat> we joined a uh, riding club. All of you know Mert. You know how crazy he is about horses. Any darn fool at 82 that buy a horse has got to be crazy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we joined this riding club. And uh, boy, did they know how to drink. It was beer mostly, but, you know, we, we'd have the, these rides, and we had a chuck wagon we took along, and it was loaded with beer. And by the time they, we'd, we'd go to a certain place, and we'd have lunch, and they'd drink. By the time everybody was coming home, they were falling off their horses and drunk and everything, you know. And it was really, I, I just didn't like that. We took our, our little boy uh, with us. He had a pony, too, and he'd go along. And I kind of got tired of that, all that drinking. And uh, then we, we'd also go with a group to the Elks Club. And like I said before, I just love to dance. And uh, we'd go with a group of people. There'd be, oh, maybe 10, 12 around a great big table. All of you are familiar with the Elks Club. Just a minute. And this, this was a Saturday night affair. And I never will forget, I don't know how, how long this went on or anything, but I never will forget one night I was sitting there at the table and somehow or other I was all alone. Everybody else was, I don't know where Mert was, and everybody else was dancing. And I looked around that table, and there were drinks stacked up. You know how it is when you go out to drink, well, you got to buy around and they buy around and this one buys around and everything. Well, I had been nursing my one drink, and here was about, oh, six or eight drinks stacked up in front of me of what I was drinking. And I looked around the table, and I saw all that, those drinks stacked up, and I started counting the money in them, you know. That was the only thing it meant to me, was how much money was being spent on that stuff. And I thought, you know, this is a bunch of baloney, because we can't afford this. He was working as a parts man. We were making good living. But, you know, when you go out back in the 40s, I mean, and you spend 20 rounds for, $20 for a round of drinks, that's a lot of money. And I never thought about what the liquor was doing or anything. So I quit drinking. I thought, this is a bunch of baloney. I'll just find something else to do. And there was another couple in the crowd that I talked to her in. We were real close. So on Saturday nights, instead of going to the Elks, why we'd have card parties at our house. And, of course, there was still the drinking. They'd have a bottle, but, but it didn't cost that much, see. And that's all I was worried about because I, didn't, I couldn't see spending that kind of money on booze. And along about this sometime along this time, I quit drinking, but he couldn't. And later when I thought back, after I was in Al-Anon, I never could understand the disease of alcoholism. I always thought that's a bunch of bull. You know, it's self-inflicted. And if they didn't want to drink, they had enough willpower, they didn't have to drink. You know, that was my thoughts. But looking back, after I was in Allen on a while, I could see where I could, I could quit, and it didn't bother me, but he couldn't. And that's when his drinking, as I always say, went underground. That's when he started hiding the bottles, and I started looking. Uh, 
and he would do all this good stuff. And you know, he wasn't a happy drunk anymore. He'd get on here in hell. Oh, yeah, and if I'd ask him a few questions, he'd blow his cork. He had the shortest fuse he still has. But, uh, <laughs> but there was a difference. And, you know, he got a job where he traveled all week. And I was glad that he was gone because the kids and I... But this time we had another little boy. There are 11 years between them. I call them pre-war and post-war. You know. <laughs> but anyway, I took over the job of being mother and father to these two boys. And our oldest son was very active in scouts. And they needed someone to drive them here and drive them there. Well, once in a while, he'd be able to go. And he enjoyed it when he did. But there was a lot of times when I went with the, the boys. And then our youngest boy was active in baseball. And uh, I know when they call for fathers vo to volunteer, you know, to go down and rake the field. I was down there with all those fathers raking the field because he wasn't able to be there. And maybe he was out of town or something. I'll give him that credit because uh, through the years he did work an awful lot with the baseball during some of his sobriety, you know, or I won't say sobriety, dry times. He would work with the kids in the baseball, and he, he was really good with them. And he, he trained our youngest son in his boxing. So they really had a good relationship with their dad. But... I really took over most of the responsibilities because I just, I'm a kind of person when I want something done, I want it done now. I don't want to fiddle around and, and wait for uh, somebody to get, and it okay knows how patient you have to be with Mert. <laughs> but anyway, let's see, i got to get back here. <laughs> Uh, see, I'm not telling you a story, but I, like I say, he's going to pop up here every once in a while. <laughs> but anyway, it got along there. Our oldest boy had gone off to college, and he after he went to college, he never come home again. And our youngest boy was in high school. And, you know, you'd think that someone that, with a little bit of intelligence would have figured out that that all this drinking, I never did call him an alcoholic. I called him a drunk because I didn't, I didn't uh, know anything about alcoholism. I didn't know what an alcoholic was. And that may seem naive to a lot of you, but back then it, I, you just didn't hear about it like you did now, and there weren't treatment centers and all this good stuff. So anyway, I remember it got real bad. And I thought, oh, my God, i got to do something about this. So evidently somebody had ta uh, told me, well, I had a sister-in-law that had a pretty good drinking problem, and she'd gone to AA. And she uh, put that seed in my mind, and I thought, well, uh, I'll call AA. So I called AA, and I got this nice lady on the phone, and I, some of you old-timers will remember, it was Pat. She's dead now, but I tell you, she was a blessing. And she talked to me, and she asked me, she says, have you ever thought of Al-Anon? And I said, well, what's that? Well, she says, it's for the families of alcoholics. And I said, no, I'd never heard of it. And she said, well, they have a meeting on Thursday nights over at 917 North Beach. 
And she said, I'd suggest that you go. But she said, if ever you want to talk to anybody, she says, you, you feel free to call me. And she told me an awful lot about her alcoholism. And, you know, I got, I, I got a little insight of, of probably how it was with my husband, that, you know, it was an obsession. And, and a lot of these things, I mean, things she told me, I could see that he, that he did. And I just, I just knew he drank too much, and I just figured he could quit. And I was going to go, I was going to fix him. So I went to this meeting, uh, over at 917 North Beach, and this was in 19, about 64, I think. See, I'm a slow learner. He'd been drinking since 45. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> anyway, I walked in there, and if any of you are familiar with North Beach, they didn't have any of the lights on overhead. They just had the lights around the room. There's a few lights, and it looked like a bar room to me when I walked in there. It was a dark, and there was a woman sitting up on the podium, and she was reading from a book. The meeting had started, and I slipped in and sat down, and I didn't hear a thing she said. I didn't find out till years later that she was reading out of the big book. She was reading the chapter to the wives. But I didn't hear a thing she said. I must have heard, uh, you know, I sat there the whole meeting and then I got up and there wasn't a person there that said hello or anything. Well, I realize now, the way I slipped in and slipped out, they didn't have a chance to say hello, you know. And I thought, well, I thought if this is Al-Anon, they can have it. I don't want it. I'll do this myself. So I went home and that's Sunday. Well, in the meantime, I had... I had talked an awful lot about moving out. And my son was either sophomore or junior in high school. And uh, he says, well, Mom, why should we move? He says, why don't you make Dad move? Well, I knew a stick of dynamite wouldn't get him out of there, you know. <laughs> and I knew that if anything had to be done, it had to be done by me, and I had to do it. So... I talked about that a lot of times, and I packed my clothes so many times you'd be surprised. I wore them out in my mind. <clears throat> but anyway, I decided, after I'd been at that Allen on meeting, I called Pat again, and she talked to me, and she gave me an awful lot of good Allen on and AA, you know. And I felt good about it, but I thought, well, now I've got to do something. So Sunday I looked through the paper, and I found a place to rent. And I don't know where he was that Sunday. He was out of it. And uh, so I uh, went over and I rented this house. And I told Dan, I said, uh, now, you have a choice. I said, you can stay here with your dad or you can move with me. It's just up to you. But I says, I just can't live this way anymore. And he says, well, Mom, I'll move with you. So he stayed home from school on that Monday. And we moved. And I didn't tell him where we were going or anything, but I wrote him a letter. Boy, and I told him what I thought of him, you know. <laughs> and I told him that, that he, uh, what his drinking was doing. And I said, you've got to make a choice. It's either the bottle or me. You can't have both. Now, I thought it was that easy. I thought that he could do that. And if he loved us, he'd do it. So... Like I, it was in November, the first part of November when we moved, and it was a pretty snowy winter. And I had a good job. I didn't have to depend on him. That's one thing that's always been my 
you know, ace in the hole. I always had a good job. I didn't have to depend on him for <clears throat> for money if I wanted to move out, and I didn't want anything from him. He came over. He found out where we were living, and he came over with his paycheck and gave it to me, and I handed it back to him, and I told him to pay his own bills. But I was paying mine, and, uh, of course, I had he didn't have a August of what we owed, so I had to make him a list. And uh, <laughs> he he took he t- he did that, you know. He he went home and he paid it. But I want to tell you, we didn't have a garage then, and I'd have to go out in the morning and sweep off the car and shovel the walk on the way to the car. And when I moved over in that little house, we had a lot of snow, and I'd get up in the mornings, and my walk would be shoveled, and my car would be swept off. You know, I got more attention. In that two weeks that I was gone, that I had for, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> he really wanted to smooth things. Well, it finally, it took him about two and a half weeks to make up his mind that he's going to put the cork in the bottle. <clears throat> so, like a darn fool, I just, you know, I figured that was it. I figured if the drinking was gone, that all the problems were gone. So, we moved back home. God, I wished I'd never moved out if you'd have seen that house. <laughs> But anyway, uh, <laughs> it was right around Thanksgiving. We moved back home. And, you know, he was dry for about... Now, we don't agree on this because, see, he was sneaking drinks that I didn't know about, and I, my no- I thought I had a good nose, but evidently I missed it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he was sober for about two and a half years two years that I know of. Anyway, in this, in this, I, I won't say sober. Now that I know the kind of sobriety he has, he was dry. He didn't have any help. He didn't go to AA that I knew of. <clears throat> so anyway, during this period, God stepped in there and saved his life. If it hadn't have been for that period of sobriety, I'll call it, uh, he might not be here today because he got very sick. And before, when he got sick, I'd think it was just the booze and I didn't pay a darn bit of attention to him. I thought, well, he can take care of himself. You know, I wasn't going to do anything about it. I didn't suggest going to a doctor or anything. But he never did miss a day's work. I never could see how he could do that, be so drunk the night before, but he never missed a day's work. But anyway, he was really sick. And I insisted that he go to the doctor. And he did, and he was doctoring on these pills, the doctor giving pills for pain and everything. So finally, I got tired of that, and I told the doctor, I says, I want you to put him in the hospital and find out what's wrong with him. But you see, if, if he hadn't been not drinking, I wouldn't have been this persistent. And what we did find out was he had colon cancer, and we did catch it in time. And thank God for that, because he came through the operation just great. If if we'd have let it go on, heaven only knows what would have happened. <clears throat> so I always say that God knows what he's doing, and he stepped in there, and he helped us out. That He, he watches over us all the time, but that was one time that I knew that he took over without me knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> So he, he, he got awfully active. That was when he got active in the baseball. And I think Lana's husband will remember uh, Mert in the baseball. And Danny with his boxing, you know, and all. And, and it was a good time, I thought. 
I thought it was a real good time. But it seemed to me when he'd get close to this time where he had to have his, uh, now we probably won't agree with this either, but it get close to the time when he'd have to go in for his checkups, he'd get a little edgy, <coughs> and, he'd start, and he'd have a few drinks. So now I want to tell you how dumb I was. He came home one day and he says, you know, he said, if I could just come home and sit down and have a drink before dinner, he says, that's all I want. He said, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't drink any more than that, you know. And I thought, well, now what can that hurt? <clears throat> so I, I just gave him the go-ahead, you know. And there his bottle went back, and he always had to keep it in the refrigerator. <clears throat> and every time I'd hear that refrigerator open, I knew what was happening. But uh, he kept his bottle in the refrigerator, and uh, he started drinking again. And, of course, I just saw the one drink. But I knew he couldn't get that way on just one drink. <clears throat> so here I was. I had, I hadn't tried. I'd called AA and everything, and I didn't know what else to do. So I went to my minister, and I talked to him about it. And he said, "Well, he said, have you ever tried drinking with him?" And I said, "Well, yeah." <clears throat> this minister really knew a lot about alcoholism. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> And I said, well, yeah, no, I hadn't. He says, well, he says, maybe if you just sit down and have a drink with him. Why, he says, maybe, you know, things that's... So that night when he came home, why, I said, well, mix me one, too. And I don't think he really wanted to give up that part of his whiskey, but he did, you know. <laughs> He'd mix me a drink, and it'd be a weak one. Well, that didn't work, and I thought to myself, well, to hell with it. I'm not going to become a drunk just to straighten him out, you know. So I cut that out. And then I talked to my doctor, and I'll tell you how much my doctor knew. He says, get a baseball bat and hit him over the head with it. <laughs> well, that, that's the kind of advice I had. <clears throat> well, we went on, and, and you know what they say. You know this? this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. We all know that, and it's, like I say, a disease of denial. And I, <clears throat> I didn't know what to do, but you all know that after they take the first drink, they're just right back down there, and this is what happened. And uh, here I was back hunting the bottles, and, you know, I'd, I'd throw the booze out, until I got to thinking, you know, that's stupid because there he'll just go buy some more and there's that money down the drain. <clears throat> so uh, let's see what other crazy things did I do. I don't know, but the insanity of this disease is just absolutely baffling. <laughs> anyway, it, we, it went on until about in uh, May of 1970. And we had a neighbor across the street that uh, I had seen her husband lay out on the wall or out on the grass, and I knew what was going on over there. So you know damn well everybody knew what was going on over our house, <laughs> but I didn't think so. You know, you always think nobody knows. You cover up all this stuff. But anyway, uh, I just thought one time I'd. I, I was just at the end of my rope and I didn't know what to do. So I w went over and I talked with her. Well, I got an Al-Anon meeting right off the bat. She asked me, 
well, do you know any, have you ever been down and on? And I said, oh, yeah, I went once a long time ago. And she said, well, that won't do it. <clears throat> and she said, you know, the purpose of Al-Anon is uh, not to uh, get him sober. She said, it's to uh, look at yourself and to straighten out your life. Well, I had a good basis of what the principles were before I ever went to my first meeting. And I thought, well, I might as well try it again. So it was the first part of June in 1970. So this is my 20th anniversary month. <laughs> but you know this time when I walked in that 917 North Beach, I was, I was ready for Al-Anon. And I heard what was said. And you know what? There were three or four girlfriends of mine that I'd gone to school with. Can you imagine that? And it was just really great. And they said, keep coming back. And I kept going back. And I've kept going back. And, of course, I always, I have to go gung-ho on everything. And I really got in there, you know. And this, I, this first step admitted we were powerless over alcohol. They decided, they said to say powerless over the alcoholic. Well, for a long time, I wouldn't believe that because I wasn't powerless over him. <clears throat> I was going to straighten him out. But, but I did get the right idea this second time around because I knew all this that I'd gone through and all this that I had tried, you know, hadn't worked. So I thought, well, maybe I better take a look at me and see what's going on. And I did. And I really tried and I worked those first three steps over and over and over. I think we have to do that. And uh, I kept going to Al-Anon. And, and, you know, we live, when you're living with a, <laughs> I don't like the word practicing because he had it down perfect, you know. <laughs> but anyway, when you're living with a practicing alcoholic, why you, uh, you there's just a lot of things that that happen that uh, like I've heard a lot of you alcoholics talk about loneliness. Well, you know you can be awfully lonely with someone sitting there in the chair passed out at seven o'clock at night, and you'd like to go someplace. And you wouldn't know, you don't know what to do. No one to talk to. And it's kind of lonely too, standing at the window at midnight, looking for that car coming up the street, and hoping to God it'll turn in the driveway, and hoping it'll be all in one piece, and that he will be all in one piece. And I never could go to bed until the cat was in, the kids were in, and Mert was in. You know, <laughs> I couldn't go to bed. So, uh, anyway, I grasped this program pretty good, and I worked it, and I really felt good. And I quit questioning him. You know, when he'd come in the door, I used to, boy, I'd, I'd want to know where he was, how much he'd been drinking, who he'd been with, and you know what the hell difference does that make? They're home, they're drunk, and, you know, they're safe when they get home. So that, I, I quit doing that. 
and and it eased up a little bit. And he kind of got he didn't have anybody to argue with, you know. And he'd like to he'd like to <laughs> argue with me, but I just wouldn't argue because we learn we learn we're not supposed to do those things. And uh, like I say, I'm a slow learner, and here it was. I was in Elanon five years, and. As far as I was concerned, things were going better because I had a freedom that I'd never had before. I didn't let him dominate my life. I didn't let the, that drinking dominate me. If I want, I it was hard for me to start because over the years we had drifted away from all our friends. We didn't have any friends. I didn't have anybody to go to the show with or, you know, a, a close girlfriend or anything. <clears throat> and uh, because I didn't want, I, I imagine that everybody knew our business anyway, but I just didn't uh, have anyone close. And I, I never will forget my mother saying one time, I didn't like to talk about it because, you know, if anybody said anything against him, boy, I was on the, I was on the war path. I was defending him. I didn't like, I could say it. I could call him every name in the book. But boy, I didn't want anybody else to. I never will forget my mother one time. She she thought an awful lot of this son-in-law that she didn't want me to marry, but he, he became really her favorite. And she liked a little nip now and then, <clears throat> and he'd fix it for her when she'd come up, you know. And uh, she told me one time, I had a sister that was very, well, she was a lot, uh, she was aggressive, and she didn't take anything off of anybody, you know. And she, she really had a... a temper that I didn't have and she told me one time she says well she says if Mert was married to Thelma he would never drink and I thought oh my gosh you know <laughs> there was something wrong with me you know I, I probably was the cause of him drinking and I tried everything in the book to uh, this was before I went into to Al-Anon I, I thought really that it was my fault and if I ramble you guys have got to understand because I don't have any notes. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he he never would promise that he'd quit drinking. And I appreciated that. Because he knew that if he promised me, I expected him to keep that promise. You know, those kids could never promise me anything. They knew they had to keep it. And if I promised those kids anything, I mean, our word was good. We kept our promises. So he just kind of, you know, pussyfooted around, and he never would say that he would quit. But if he had a boat, he would have more time. You know, he'd work on the boat, and we could spend more time together and all this kind of crap. So we got a boat. <laughs> yeah. And we joined the boat club, or the water ski club. Well, God, I'm telling you, if you've ever lived through somebody driving those windy roads home drunk, you haven't lived, I tell you. And it, it got pretty bad out there. And I just got so I just hated that water ski club because it just seemed like that, that you know, he was drunk all the time out there. <clears throat> and, of course, everybody knew it. And you, th there's no use to try to hide anything. But anyway, those are just a few of the things that I was thinking of that uh, uh, before I went into Al-Anon. But there's another uh, thing, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about abuse. Now, I, I know I took an awful lot of verbal abuse, and it can be kind of bad. 
it can really be really bad. But the physical abuse came from me. You know, he'd be passed out in his chair, and I'd be so damn mad at him, I just could hardly stand it, and I'd walk by and I'd hit him on top of the head as hard as I could, you know. And he wouldn't even move, you know. <laughs> he'd wonder the next day what happened. <laughs> But I got, I got a lot out of me, you know, and another thing I used to do, I used to write letters. Because there he'd be sitting, snoring away, and uh, I'd be so mad. Oh, God, I was mad. And I'd sit down and I'd write a letter. And I'd tell him everything I felt. And all the names I called him, and you know, I, I, I added some new ones to the list. Boy, I, I, and I would write all that out and get all my frustrations out, and I'd fold that letter up and I'd put it in an envelope, and I'd think, well, I'm going to give that to him tomorrow, and then he'll know how I feel. He never did get one of those letters. The only letter he ever got was that one that I told him, it's the bottle or me. And I, the next morning I'd get up early and I'd tear that letter up. But you know, those letters did help me. They helped me get my frustration out. And those of you who know me and Alan, I know about my God box. You know, to let go and let God is an awfully, I mean, it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. And the only way I can do it when I have a problem that's really bothering me, I write that problem on a piece of paper and I pray for it and I put that in my God box. And when that goes in my God box, I forget about it. And every so often I review that box. And you'd be surprised at how many of those problems have been taken care of. And that I, because I'm a person, I don't know how many of you are, but some little thing happens and you stew about it and you stew and you stew and you stew and you can't get it off your mind. Well, now I don't do that. If I find myself dwelling on something too much, I write it on a little piece of paper and I put it in my God box and he takes it. And I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, to go back, I was in Al-Anon for about <clears throat> five years. Well, I wasn't getting any younger, and neither was he. And I thought, oh, my land. I was doing all right. I mean, personally, I felt good about me. And I could handle this. And I had a freedom that I never had before. I, w I never will forget the first time I did anything. I come home, for, uh, you know, alone. I never would go to a show alone or go this or there alone, but this was during fair week, and I just loved to go out and walk around the grounds and everything on fair week. Well, he, he never was able to because he'd be home in the chair or someplace. Well, I come home from uh, an Al-Anon meeting one night, and we'd stayed a little late. It was about 9.30, and lo and behold, there he was out mowing the lawn, 9.30. <coughs> and I thought, well... I'll ask him if he wants to go to the fair with me. Well, he didn't want to go. So I got in the car and I went by myself. And that was the first time that I had really taken things in my hands and gone and done something and did not let him control it that I had to stay at home because he was home. And I could maybe if I stayed home, he wouldn't get so drunk. I don't know how many of you would do that, but I'd think if I'd rush home from work and get dinner on the table, you know, 
well, then he wouldn't get so drunk. Well, I tell you, I just almost hit him over the head with every, breakfast, every plate we had because he wouldn't eat. He'd come home, and I'd have dinner ready. Well, he wouldn't want to eat. And that was one of the biggest fights that we used to have. And after I was in Allen, it took, it, like I say, I'm a slow learner, but after I was in Allen on quite a while, I thought, why should I force that onto him? If he doesn't want to eat, that's his problem. I'm going to eat when I, I have to eat early, or I get, I get a headache. So I would get, come home from work, and I'd get my dinner. And sometimes, I did for a while put his in the oven until so much food spoiled that I just uh, quit doing that. And, uh, uh, but I gave that up. I gave that fight up. Because, and even now, I mean, he doesn't like to eat right away when he comes home. And if he does, I ask him, and if he does. But if he says, no, he doesn't, I said, well, then you're on your own. Because I'm not going to to uh, get my dinner, and then at nine o'clock he's uh, and I'm watching some TV program I want. Then he says he wants something to eat. He can get up and get it, because I'm not. You know that that's ridiculous. <laughs> and he knows. <laughs> but anyway, let's see. Like I say, I was in Elnon about five years or so, and I decided it wasn't. Uh, you know, he wasn't getting any better. And I've learned in the meantime through his story and him telling things that he did go to AA off and on. But you know, I didn't pay any attention to it because he'd come home, and I'm glad I didn't because if I'd have thought that he, if I thought he was going to AA and was really serious and then he'd come home and he'd have a slip, that would have really got to me and I'd have probably overreacted. But I really didn't pay any attention to it because he. I remember one time he came home from a meeting and uh, he said he'd been to an AA meeting and I said, oh, how was your meeting? And he said, well, just a minute. So he mixed him a drink and he sat down and told me about the meeting. <laughs> so you see, I knew he wasn't, he must not have been serious. But I got to thinking, you know, I'm going to retire one of these days and my God, do I want to live this way. Do I want to live with a, a drunk the rest of my life? You see, I didn't call him an alcoholic. To me, he was still a drunk. And uh, even after I learned what alcoholism is, I didn't figure that I could call him an alcoholic unless he said that he was an alcoholic. And I still believe that because they're the only ones that can say. They're the only ones that know how they feel and know what it does to them. So anyway... I pondered and pondered and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, if I was going to make a life for myself, it had to be now while I was still working and while I was still able to make a life for myself. You know, in hearing a lot of these uh, young people's stories, you hear so much about divorce. You know, I never once thought about divorce. Never. Murder many times. <laughs> but I, I never I never once thought about divorce. You know, I grew up with uh you know, when you got married, you got married for life. And you you took them for better or for worse. And that's that's one thing. Of course there has to be a lot of love there too. But uh, that's one thing that uh, I, I always thought about. After I, 
after I actually accepted that alcoholism was a disease, I thought, well, you know, here is this poor, sick person, and I could never desert him, you know, but I could kick him out, and I did. <clears throat> and uh, But anyway, I'll go back to that morning. I, I, it was, I can't remember what month it was, but nevertheless... I had been uh, wanting several times to talk to Jug. I know a lot of you, he was down there at Wellbeing. And I'd go by there on my way to work. And I'd hope his car was there so I could talk to him. Because he helped me an awful lot. And uh, his car wouldn't be there. And I'd go on to work. But my job was my salvation because when I went to work, I, I forgot my problems at home. They, they were at home and I, I didn't think about them. But in all this time, I was really working my Al-Anon, and I was feeling good about myself. And I never will forget one time I sat, we were sitting there, Mert and I sat across from each other in our chairs and watched TV, and a lot of nights we don't say a word, but you know when we go by each other, we'll pat or, or uh, uh, he'll give me a kiss or something, you know. Maybe we won't say too many words, but we have a communication that, that's okay for us. But anyway, uh, one night we were sitting there and I, I was feeling real good about myself because I, I really, you know, I was working the steps and I was going to Al Anon and I really felt good. And I said to him, I says, do you notice a change in me? And he said, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I thought, well, bullshit, you know. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I just thought that for a little while, and I thought, well, you know, that's his problem. I feel it. I feel the change in me, and that's all that's important. As long as I knew it, and as long as I felt it, and as long as I didn't have these fears and these resentments. And, you know, I got, after I was in Al-Anon quite a while, I got so I could go by him and him sitting there in the chair, and I could pat him on the head, or I could kiss him on the head, you know, or pat his cheek and say, I love you even though he was drunk. And that's when I knew that, you know, you have to have compassion to live with these alcoholics or drunks or whatever you want to call them. But anyway, this one morning, he was working out the mine. And uh, his shift evidently, I think, got off at midnight. But I would go on to bed. I, I'd quit waiting at the window, and I'd quit worrying about whether the cat was in or Mert was in. I, when I wanted to go to bed, I went to bed. And that was really great. That was one of the freedoms that I, that I got out of my Al-Anon and working my program. So anyway, uh, I woke up about, oh, I guess it was about 4.30 or 5 o'clock, and he wasn't home. <clears throat> well, I was a little worried because, you know, driving that distance, I, I don't care who you are. I, I didn't even think about him drinking, but, I, you know, just driving back and forth or having an accident or some darn thing. And Mert wasn't a guy to uh, drink in the bars. His car was his bar. He had a traveling bar, and it was with him all the time. And he, he drank in his, he kept his booze in his, his uh, car. And to go back to some of my crazy things I did, I used to sneak the keys out of his pocket and go out and look in the car to see how much booze he had. Now, what good that did me, I don't know. But I'd have to know. 
you know, how much he had. And I, I quit emptying it because I didn't want, I knew that just cost money. <clears throat> but anyway, this morning, I guess it was about, oh, well, I, I was worried and I was waiting and I, I had, you have all kinds of thoughts, you know, and I thought, well, golly. So anyway, uh, about, I guess it was about 6.30 or 7, his car pulled in the driveway. And I thought, well, thank God he's home, you know. <clears throat> and uh, I got ready to go to work. And I looked out there, and he'd made it out of his car, but he was laying in the driveway. And I went out, and I uh, looked down, and, you know, we're not supposed to help him, but I couldn't see him laying there. And I put my hand down, and I says, do you want me to help you up, hon? And he pushed my hand away. He says, I don't need any help from you. And I looked up at the heavens and I said, God, I says, you can have him. And I really released him to God. Because I knew that I wasn't doing him any good. I was going to Al-Anon. I was taking care of myself. But he was getting worse. And it was just like I was giving him a ticket to drink. And I wasn't helping him. Well, on that way to work that morning, Jug's car was in the driveway down at Wellbeing. And I went in, and I talked to him, and I told him, and he says, well, he says, are you serious about wanting to do something? He says, you know, you <clears throat> if you make a decision, you know, you have to stay with it. And uh, he says, I can give you the name of a lawyer. Well, I didn't want a divorce, and I told him that, you know. But I thought a, a separate maintenance would be all right. Because to me, divorce was a bad word. I, I just didn't believe in divorce. So he gave me the, this is the way God works in funny ways. He gave me the name of two lawyers. And the one I chose was a recovering alcoholic. And I talked to him. And he was so good, he sat there and he talked to me for two hours or better. And he told me all of the things. He says, now, he says, if you file these papers on him, he says, what if he kills himself? Are you going to feel responsible for that? Well, I had enough Al-Anon that I knew that he would have to be responsible for his actions because I'm responsible for mine. So I said, yeah, I, I felt I, you know, that I wouldn't, but I never, I didn't ever think that he would do that. And then he asked, but he asked me all kinds of questions like that. Well, he found the papers on Mert, and of course, Mert just couldn't believe it. He just absolutely didn't think that I'd ever do anything like that. And if you've heard him, he says I exiled him to uh, <laughs> Shirley Basin. <laughs> Well, he doesn't know, but I kept pretty well in touch with him because, you know, you can you love someone all those years, you just don't turn loose of them that quick and you just don't forget about them. And I'd, I'd send him a letter and let him know I was thinking about him and I always told him I loved him. And when he called me, I accused him a lot of times of uh, being drunk when he called and I told him not to call me when he was drunk. But he told me later that, that he wasn't drunk, that he was just tired you know, but he said, of course, I was always looking for these things. Well, it took him about 10 months. Well, oh, and in, in this agreement and everything, 
He couldn't come to the house when he was drinking. And if he came back home, he knew that what the uh, uh, rules or whatever you want to call them would be. He had to go to AA. He had to quit drinking. But he had to go to AA. Because I knew before when he quit drinking, you see, he had a dryness, but he didn't have sobriety. And he didn't have AA. And there's a lot of difference. And you know, when we think that when the drinking goes that the problems are over, well, they're not. You know, the drinking is gone. But I thought that during those two years of, or two and a half years, whatever, sobriety he had, I thought all our problems were over. Well, you see how long that lasted. So anyway, like I say, it took him about uh, 11 uh, oh gosh, months or 10 months to make up his mind that he wanted to come home. Well, when you've heard his story, like I say, I'm not supposed to tell it, but anyway, he was through at the mine and he called and he said he was through out there. Well, he thought I said, when are you coming home? Now, this is where God steps in again. I said to him, what are you going to do? But he thought I said, and thank God he thought it. Because he says, I'll be home as soon as I can get things squared away here. He had a trailer out there. Well, he came home, and he really hit the AA meetings. And I'm, the rest of you know the rest of the story. But I tell you, without Al-Anon, I couldn't have done what I did. Because, you know, it's awful hard to see somebody you love come up to the door and knock on the door and want a place to sleep and you can't let them in. Now, I, I wouldn't have been that strong, or I wouldn't, but I knew that if I gave away and let him come in, things would be just exactly the way they used to be. And that was the only way that I could help him. And whether he believes it or not, I really, that's the only way that I knew to help him was to completely let go because I could not keep my hands off while he was still at home. He had to be, you know, I I'd, I'd had to put him in my God box or something, but he wouldn't fit. <laughs> but I, I just could, you know, uh, there's just something about it. You try and try, and I just couldn't, uh, I just couldn't leave things alone. So that was the only thing I could do. Well, I never will forget I was sitting on the steps one day, and uh, it was the 16th of May of 1976 or something like that. I don't remember. But anyway, he'd been out to the lake, and he turned the corner, and I thought, oh, there he is. He's drinking again, you know. Well, he was. And he pulled into the driveway, and... I don't know, I had just an awful lot of compassion for him, and I felt so sorry for him. And I just, I just loved him so much. And he come over, and he knelt down, and he had tears in his eyes. And he says, can you ever forgive me? And I said, well, can you forgive yourself? And that's all I said. And you know, that's the last drink he had. That's the last time he drank. And thank God for that. And thank God for Al-Anon. And thank God for all you AAs. I love you all.